Welcome to The Vow, Voice of Women. Our mission has always been about empowering women through the sharing of real-life stories. When women create a community through the journey of sharing, we gain empathy, forgiveness, and perspective. We encourage you to open your heart to receive today's story. My guest today is Dr. Naminder Sandhu. Naminder, welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here today. Oh, well, we're excited to have you. And I have a funny story on how Naminder and I met. <laughs> right? Oh my goodness, how many years has it been? Very random. Yeah, very random. Yes. It was probably five years ago, maybe four or five oh, yeah. years. And um, I think, he, did you follow me on Instagram? And I, I was following you. I was probably already thinking about real estate and some yeah. sort of shifts and then... You, uh, you call my attention. So yeah, for sure. so I posted a picture of my apple tree mm-hmm. in the backyard, and it was a year where we had this bumper crop. And my apple tree, if it has a bumper crop, is enough to feed a small village. And I, these are edible apples. They're called a rescue crab. They're amazing. You can cook with them. You can eat them. They're a mid-size apple. And the tree was hanging. And I said, if anybody wants to have come and pick apples off my tree because I don't want them to go to waste, please come. And so this beautiful woman contacts me and she's like, I, is this weird that I don't know you, but I want to come pick your apples? Yeah. So I met her in my backyard and she picked apples and you made something out of them. What did you make? Um, I, I definitely would have made an apple pie. I'm sure they stretched into a couple other pastries of some sort and I feel terrible because I don't think I came back and shared it oh gosh no I was just so grateful that you came and picked these apples and then this started us kind of going back and forth and we chatted real estate over the years and here we are today what a story (laughs) I know I love it but that's you know what I feel that's the beautiful part about Calgary you know you kind of you meet people and you just feel comfortable when you met them off of Instagram and they're Mm -hmm. picking apples in your backyard Mm -hmm. and I remember you standing back there and you're like is this weird I'm like no it's not weird it's totally (laughs) fine so Dr. Naminder uh, Sandhu was born and raised in Calgary and a proud daughter of Punjabi immigrants who practice pediatric emergency medicine at the Alberta Children's Hospital Nerminder is a clinical assistant professor with the University of Calgary and an active educator at the undergraduate and postgraduate medical education levels with over a decade of teaching experience. She is a respected leader having served as PEM, Subspecialty Residency Program Director for numerous years and more recently an Interim Section Chief. She is an active member of various committees supporting the Department of Pediatrics with her growing professional interests lying in the spheres of equity, diversity, inclusivity, physician mentorship, and burnout wellness. Naminder serves as a director on the board of Canadian Women in Medicine, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping women thrive both personally and professionally. As a longtime learner, Naminder is pursuing training in functional medicine on the side and recently received her certification as a yoga teacher who offers her skills to her colleagues to promote self-care since the COVID-19 pandemic. She was raised to value community engagement and serves as a board member of Between Friends Calgary, a local agency benefiting people with disabilities. A life in medicine thus far has been a challenging one, with the recent pandemic has renewed her mission to find fulfillment and value in our communities, connection, and ourselves. I have the pleasure of sitting down with her today to hear her journey through medicine. Dr. Sandhu, welcome. 
Well, that was quite the introduction. <laughs> what a mouthful. Thank you for that. Yeah, I think that sums up a lot of things about my life. So, well, well put, I guess. <laughs> So Navinder, let's chat about your journey through medicine. Did you dream as a little girl of being a doctor or, you know, what, what was that like? Mm, great question. I think a lot of people, there's different groups of us in medicine. Um, I am definitely of the group where uh, I had no exposure to anyone medical in my family. Um, somewhat of a typical immigrant story with my parents being the first of their uh, families to come to Canada clearly instilled certain values. I was exposed to a very certain specific type of life where there were a lot of struggles. And so through that, I think comes a lot of um, character building and values instilled, including the uh, importance of determination and hard work and really not taking for granted that they create this opportunity for us. Um, so I apparently, even when I was like three or four years old, being this huge empath and very, very insightful about just how hard my parents worked, this is what they tell me, um, they always felt like I just had this maturity to me where I was always trying to figure out how could I be the best me. Um, and so I do recall in grade six, grade seven, when it became a bit more of an intentional exercise to think about what are you gonna be when you grow up, uh, me being very reflective of like what I wanted to provide to society. And so put together a mixture of, I knew as a very analytical, problem-solving, science-y kind of brain, um, and I wanted to go to work every day feeling like I provided something. I um, was able to reach my potential, and knowing that I loved intimate interactions with people as well. Introverted in my own right, but definitely wanted to be able to engage with people at an intimate level. So those combined ultimately led me to discover that medicine made sense for me. Um, so I, I do recall, it must have been grade seven, I believe, onwards is when I felt like that's what I'm shooting for. And so was there, at what age, or maybe it was through, you know, med school, what, when did you realize you wanted to go into pediatrics? Mm -hmm. A lot of people, I, I only know this now, having been on the, being on the other side of the journey, uh, a lot of people don't re realize there is the different steps you have to take, even after you decide, I want to be a doctor, I get into medical school, the journey's not done then. You need to choose a specialty um, and then apply, you know, there and so on and so forth. So it was in med school when the um, pressure gets on you that you need to decide what type of doctor you want to be. And for me, it was also a natural fit for me to consider pediatrics from early on. Again, the patient population, just my ability to engage with them um, versus all the multitude of other specialties. So that choice was made in medical school I was successful in applying, and then that's what led me to do pediatrics as a residency. Next to that, some people choose to subspecialize further, and um, that would mean not only uh, practicing the pediatric population, but then choosing a smaller section of medicine within the pediatric realm. So that's an option, and for me, that was one I really considered. Um, so either for me, I thought I could be a general pediatrician or I could choose something a little more specialized. And for me, the fit ultimately led me to emergency medicine. So that's a fellowship done after residency. So how many years in total of school? Because I'm like adding all this up in my yeah. head. Like how um, many years were you in school? Care, yeah, so after, so I did three years of undergrad and then I was successful in getting to medicine. So three plus three years here in Calgary, four years residency, two years fellowship. So 
Wow. Was that 12 years? 12 years. <laughs> After high school, yes. Oh, so my gosh. You definitely have to be okay with delayed gratification. Wow. Like, I, I think of, you know, I dropped out of university when I was 20 and started real estate, so I've been in it 22 years, and if I think of, like, 12 years of education, that's like... Yeah. You have to be really passionate. I ha you must have to be passionate about what you're doing to, to go through that amount of education. Mm -hmm. I, I think, yeah, the, the passion is, I think, front and center, even before just a sense of determination. Because yeah. we all know physicians who've gone through the process because, you know, again, determined and want to see it through, but they don't have that passion anymore. And mm -hmm. it is such a long and arduous journey. And in my mentoring trainees, I remind them of this and think really, really hard about whether this is the right fit for you, because it's it's not, uh, uh, I mean, you, you can leave the journey at any point, of course, but um, see it through. It's it's a very lengthy and process where you do sacrifice a lot. Mm -hmm. So, you know, me being in my mid-20s and all, a lot of my non-medical friends having started their lives, their personal lives are in a different position, place too. Um, you, you, you delay a lot, right, to see through this career. So, I mean, here we are. Here we are. Yeah. <laughs> um, so let's kind of uh, backtrack to pre-COVID, post-COVID and you know, I having really no interaction with the, you know, the behind the scenes of what goes in hospitals and in the medical industry outside of going to my doctor or going for my yearly checkup or those type of things. So I'm very naive and probably a bit ignorant to what, what kind of went on during COVID. We, we heard that it was very difficult, but what did, what was pre and post, what did that look like for you, especially at the children's hospital? Right, so um, we might get to probably a bigger conversation about the healthcare system, but I'll try to keep it to my, my world. Um, I think COVID for us tested our limits like no other stressor in a healthcare system ever has because it was so um, heavy hitting and long hitting as well. Um, so on a good day pre-COVID, emergency departments have typical struggles where you have volume, patients who definitely need to be there because of their acute emergent problems, but a lot of patients who show up there needing um, frontline care, primary care, but perhaps have access issues seeing their family doctor. And so you're already juggling a mixture of presentations, some of which um, might be a little simpler, a little easier and quicker to deal with, and then others which take a little bit more time or much more complex. And then it's always the conversation about how do we handle our resources. Every single day, every patient, your mind is just churning, thinking, where can I best place this patient? Where, how can I meet their needs? Um, so volume is always a challenge in the emergency medicine realm. Um, and in my specific world, we're always dealing with families too. So a lot of what we do is managing patient expectations and worries and doing the work I do, you have to be okay with that. That's just part of, I mean, you being a mom, you've been there. I'm sure you mm -hmm. have. Um, and so that is that was my world before. Um, the other piece to emerge I should mention is we uniquely work in a very tight team environment. I cannot do my job without nurses, respiratory therapists, social workers, and so I have the privilege at the Children's Hospital, our ER is phenomenally tight. We are a very uh, well-oiled machine. We work well together. And so I think that was one of the beauties of the work I was doing. Um, and then COVID hit. 
And so the stresses we did feel as far as resources, being able to get patients into our department, through our department, um, I think we were tested like no other time. Um, as I, th I think what people may not see is that um, I think initially everyone was very respectful of frontline workers and knowing that we were putting ourselves at risk in an unknown time where we didn't really know what this coronavirus was or how dangerous it was. Um, but I think what got missed over time was that it was a marathon and you know you could keep it up for a certain time but after a while um, the burnout was real. Um, we ourselves are getting sick as well. That's impacting our personal lives as well as our professional lives. And then we, we still we, we have to keep functioning still as a system. Um, so patients will still come. They will come with their worries. They'll come with their COVID, their non-COVID. And during times of uncertainty as a society, emotions get high um, and frustrations come out. And we're often, um, I guess, the recipients of frustrations and just needing to always be incredibly absorbed absorbent of it, um, it can be incredibly exhausting, mm -hmm. right, after a while. So, um, yeah, I guess that's just scraping the surface, I would say, but yeah. and we take home, it's hard, it's hard, we're humans as well, and I think on one hand we're seen as, you know, the term was used, healthcare heroes, um, but, you know, at the end of the day when I'm going home, I just feel like a human being who is exhausted, mm -hmm. and exhausted emotionally and physically too, and so that gets to you after a while. So what, like, what kept you going? Because I have to assume that there were some people that just quit. They couldn't handle the pressure. Did you see that? And did you ever have those thoughts of how much more can I handle? And how did you decompress during that period? Um, yeah, burnout as far as the impact on staffing was incredibly real. Um, and like I personally, I can speak to um, team members who, who left, they were just done. I mean, and by done meaning they, some of them left the industry, some of them left the province, um, looking for a better lifestyle, right? And, you know, as far as the satisfaction of helping people, it's there. It, it, it's a really rewarding feeling when you do have patients. You feel like, okay, I really was able to serve them. Um, but when you get to a point where you cannot provide the quality of care you want to, out of sheer limitation, resources, or exhaustion, um, that sense of, um, yeah, you, just, you lose that satisfaction. And so around me, we, we had a lot of st staffing crises because mm -hmm. of that. Um, we lost a lot of, so in my department, we lost people, but if you think bigger scale, family physicians, for example, we have lost an incredible amount of staffing. Um, and so for us, it was some days you were just getting by. Right? And we talk a lot now in medicine about this concept of wellness, uh, but I think we're still struggling to figure out what does that practically mean for us? Like wellness isn't just putting together events to you know, go out and uh, um, you know, team build at a pub, but wellness might mean for me, um, I need to talk to someone because I feel emotionally on edge. Where's that safe space? Um, wellness might mean I need to get rid of some shifts. There's just too much going on for me. Um, and so for me, one of the things that I was able to do is, uh, I'm a relatively reflective person and I was thankfully able to come to terms with, okay, I am at my boundaries and so I did pull back a little bit in some of my work as needed. 
Um, and then I, I, I realized I needed to balance out what I was doing outside of work too. And that's where this new interest in yoga. Yoga, came I know. When I, when I read that, I was like, oh, yeah. is this Which new? Timing was, uh, it's interesting the way it played out. But baking and yoga. Baking and yoga. <laughs> like, find your healthy ways to cope. Um, it is. I, it just feels like such a tragedy to think about what's been in the news in the last few years where members of our healthcare uh, teams have gotten to a point where burnout is so real. We're talking about um, suicide within our um, profession, and it, it was just sad to me that, you know, as healthcare heroes, as a system that is out there trying to help everyone else, that we ourselves are reaching limits that um, that sometimes aren't being taken care of themselves. So, um, yeah, and is that so is that like when we talk about the limits? Mm -hmm. Is that purely like patients that come in versus the amount of staff that a hospital has? Or what is causing this? Even now, let's not, let's put COVID behind us, hopefully. Let's talk about, you know, the post era of COVID. So today, the burnout or the challenges that you're seeing, is that just still so many patients coming in to the amount of staff? Like, it, what is that today? Um, I would say, so for sure, the steady state problem is staffing. And okay. that was even, that was there before COVID, but I think it didn't come to people's attention until COVID pushed us, mm. like, essentially over the edge. So when we talk about healthcare system crisis, it was there before COVID. Okay. It just wasn't perhaps being talked about as much, or we were just coping, mm. right? And now everything gets highlighted when we are talking so much about health and uh, illness because of COVID. Um, so, and, and so when we talk about the other problems, so for sure staffing is a problem, resources for sure. Um, volume is one of them, I would say. It's like we are always dealing with a lot of volume, at least in my world. Um, but more of it is, okay, if, we, if I deal with the input of patients, it's how do I output them? Um, and what I mean by that is so many of my patients need specialty uh, care services, um, and how do I get that for them? Um, another practical example in hospitals in the ER is I need to admit patients because they need some sort of hospital care, whether it's oxygen or surgery, um, but the bottleneck, where is that? So if there aren't enough beds, if there aren't enough ORs, if there aren't enough staff to keep an OR open, um, and then those patients stay with us. Mm -hmm. So it's just, it, there's a ripple effect. Um, so it, when we were talking about managing crisis, we were talking about input, throughput, and output, right? So at each of those levels, there are problems. In ERs, in the surgical world, in the primary care world, um, incredibly complex, Tanya, but like, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to yeah, no, thank you. a little bit. Yeah, well, and I, yeah. the reason, you know, that I, I wanted you to be a guest was we had met, you know, at your home in, I don't know, last year at some point. Yeah. I think it was in maybe the, the leaves were green, so it must have been in the summer. And I remember sitting at your island and, mm -hmm. and just I felt this sense of, I don't want to say burnout, but almost defeat yeah. when, you know, and I could see it in your eyes, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I thought there's a story there and, and I believe it's one that needs to be heard because for somebody like myself who doesn't have to visit a hospital regularly or hasn't had a child, thankfully, that's had to come into the children's, I sensed that you carried a lot of, like, the weight of the world was on your shoulders. And 
And so I wanted to kind of get some information, you know, kind of behind that to educate myself and our listeners. Alberta has become the seventh province to sign a 10-year, $2 billion healthcare funding deal with the federal government. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on this? And, and is that something that do you feel, even say the Alberta Children's Hospital, like are you going to feel the benefit of that? Um, to answer the second part, I don't know. <laughs> that would, yeah, so we don't really know where this money is going to go. I think first to step back for a moment. Um, whenever we're talking healthcare, we're always talking money. Everyone's mm -hmm. talking money, and I, which is really, really important to talk about that piece. Um, and this new agreement essentially is so, as many people might know, um, healthcare in general is um, managed at the provincial level, including funding for it. Um, but we're in a position where provinces are struggling, and not just Alberta. And so there's been this call out for forever, I would say, that the federal government should step in and provide funding as well to help. Um, so money in general is always a good thing to, to make things work and to provide resources. But I think what people might not recognize is you could throw billions of dollars at any initiative, at any system, and still have a system that doesn't function well. So money's not the be-all, end-all. So when we think about globally, um, Canada has one of the most expensive healthcare uh, systems, and yet we are definitely not one of the top functioning systems, right? You speak about how it's fractured and broken in various ways. So something's not working. And that's where the debate about public versus private comes in and, you know, which mix or which end of the spectrum is optimal. Um, and there's multiple systems across the country, or across the world that are being practiced. Um, so coming back to your question about this money, I, I, I think, I mean, we will take any money we can, right? When we are, we're struggling with, for example, funding staff funding infrastructure, that's great. But the problem is that's going to, that's going to, uh, I guess it's going to run out at some point, and then what is it? Do we just need more money again? It's how it's going to be used. Mm -hmm. That's going to the management the of the management money. of it exactly. Yeah. Um, so how would I like to see it spent? Uh, everyone's going to have a different opinion on that, I'm sure. But for sure, at the first thing we know that has been a challenge forever and a year, uh, it has been the primary care end of things. So that's we're talking about family doctors. How do we retain them? How do we support them so they want to be retained? How do we support them so they feel um, best capable of managing the most complex patients? Because medicine is becoming very complicated as we live to older age, um, as we're uh, surviving more complex illnesses, right? So, um, and, and the other pieces in healthcare, I think, that need a bit more attention would absolutely be the mental health mm. realm. Um, mental health is becoming exceedingly complicated at all ages. Of course, I see the pediatric population, but we can speak to all ages. Tied to that includes um, addictions and drug and uh, substance misuse as well, which is a huge crisis too. So I think mon money, yes, it's important, but uh, we have seen money mismanaged time and time again. So as much as it's nice to see that you know we'll get more funding from the, the government, this isn't the first time. Um, and I don't think it's being used the best. Um, so we'll, we'll see where, where it's going to be put mm -hmm. to, to use. Yeah. Um, the other thing I've been um, hearing in the media is this, what, we, what you briefly touched on, is the private versus public. 
and um, you know historically it's my understanding that you know the top one percent of the population can afford you know the private health care uh, which is you know not a lot so with provinces talking about this and the shift or the discussion um, can you share with us you know I guess what each is and kind of your thoughts on that um, so privately funded and delivered services have been around for quite a while. I'm not sure if many people would recognize that. So um, it's not that we are purely a publicly funded and delivered system. So when we speak about um, certain centers that offer hip and knee surgeries, for example, um, there are clinics out there, and again, this is not just provincially, but you know, in, in other provinces as well. So we do already have a small element of that type of a system. Um, the, where the conversation lies for, for those who aren't as well versed is, so the general um, philosophy by which Canadian healthcare works is we want accessible and equitable care for all. And that's where private, or sorry, public uh, healthcare comes into play. So taxpayers all uh, all citizens pay taxes or funding a system that can be accessed by anyone, regardless of your socioeconomic status, your background, um, regionally where you live, what the problem is you're dealing with. Um, as we, we have already spoken about, there's a lot of stresses to this system, and one argument is, so when, let's use the example of wait times. Um, huge wait times when we're talking about for surgeries or even for some chronic treatments. Um, and uh, which can lead to ultimately, if someone's waiting one or two years for uh, a spinal surgery, hip surgery, it can still lead to poor outcomes as things evolve for that person and patient over time. So there can be some devastating outcomes with long wait times. So an argument is then, isn't there some way, if I have the capacity to pay, I'm willing to pay on top of my taxpayer dollars to fund my own surgery. So why shouldn't that be allowed? Um, so that's a premise for having these private clinics, private uh, operating rooms. Um, and I, I think there is a role to consider that. So if we think about some countries in Europe that have relatively successful healthcare systems, um, some of the Scandinavian countries, I believe Germany, uh, the Netherlands, they do have a bit of a plan. Um, so some can argue, you know, if we want to take more simple uh, issues that could get corrected quicker, um, like certain surgeries, and why don't we have that option available? So I think then the argument becomes, there's a couple arguments. One is the obvious that there's only a certain po population that could afford that, and that's a completely valid point if we do say that some of our values include um, equitable access. The other piece, though, to remember is, I mean, instead of shifting all our focus to thinking about private healthcare, that doesn't fix the bigger problem, which is within the public system. So what are we doing to support that infrastructure? How are we then still dealing with the fact that we have finite resources, and if we put some of our resources, including our physicians and nurses, um, to be funded privately, are we taking away from the public side? Um, and still not managing the fact that family doctors don't want to practice anymore when they aren't being supported to see their complex patients. So that's, again, just a bit of an introduction to why this becomes quite a sticky conversation and one we've been having for decades. So again, not a new concept, it's just maybe many people feel this is finally the crisis moment where we really do need to start taking action instead of the conversation. 
Do you think, as we've chatted, you've mentioned multiple times about just the lack of um, people in the medical field here, you know, hospitals are short-staffed, mm -hmm. clinics are short-staffed. And I remember years ago, um, I called him my gray-haired advisor. He was a uh, two gentlemen I'd meet with for lunch every couple weeks, and they were like my gray-haired advisors. And we we uh, we met down at Bow Valley, and we parked underground, and there was a gentleman from Africa there that helped us for like we paid we gave him our ticket we'd pay for our parking ticket and he was lovely always cheerful and we'd always see him with these anatomy books open these thick thick books and um it was about year three and he said um it's been so lovely to serve you every friday for the last few years and he said i won't be seeing you again um i'm you know writing my medical exams so he was a doctor in africa and came here and had to redo uh, probably courses, exams. It took three to four, maybe even five years, I don't know. Is there any way to fast track some of these immigrants that have come that are very qualified, but then they have to go back and basically get completely re-educated again? Is there any way like that you see in that avenue to bring more healthcare workers into that's the system? A, that's a perfect example, Danny. Yeah. We do have pools, right? And that's a one that I think that is not we're not fully tapping into that we do have again very proudly this beautiful immigrant uh, population that is very talented and skilled skilled part uh, subpopulation in Canada and so are we maximizing their use and and, and they're I mean they're very keen engaged and you know instead of looking at the shifts of uh, current qualified physicians why aren't we tapping into this resource um, there is a certain uh, pathway for um, what we call inter international um, medical graduates, IMGs, um, because I do think we do need to have a standard of care, right? The 100% skill set for sure. But that has been in conversation lately too. It's funny, I was just reading something about this the other day. So, oh, right. Maybe we're in the same But they're the perfect example of one creative solution is that still maintain a certain standard. Yes. Why can we not make this the uh, the pathway a little bit more simple. Yeah, like so much red tape. Yeah. yeah. Like so I have to much. think, yeah. you know, I'm not saying that, you know, getting your, your degree, your doctorate degree at, or your medicine degree at the University of Nairobi isn't going to be different than at the University of Alberta. Yeah. However, to have to go back for four or five years seems very um, redundant. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely fair. Yeah. There is a lot of red tape and I think that's a, an area that's somewhat been neglected, mm -hmm. I'll put it that way for sure. So that's it, thanks for bringing that yeah, up. No, yeah, no, thank you for, yeah. for uh, you know, also obviously you've come across, come across that mm -hmm. recently as well. What areas do, be, do you believe need to be supported financially? Uh, I'm probably gonna touch on a couple of things I mentioned before, and I, I know I'm starting to sound like a bit of a broken record, but the biggest area of um, crisis is in the area of primary care. All of us know people who have said, I just can't find a family doctor. Or my family doctor just retired. And um, and I see families who show up in Emerge because they say, I just can't get in to see my family doctor. For problems that are, you know, they're important, but perhaps not the best way to, uh, I guess, use, use an ER yeah. for it. Um, and so in the media, I think it's been quite well portrayed that Family physicians in that community is struggling 
Um, they are not being supported appropriately, and a lot of them are, you know, you know the white flag, like I give up. I, I would way rather practice a different type of medicine. Um, I cannot take more patients. I'm going to retire early. It's because, the, you know, they're being asked to take on more, and yet not being appropriately funded or supported when it comes to their clinic um, infrastructure, the admin support they get. Um, so I would say 100% the bulk of any financial uh, budget that's being created needs to think creatively about how we can ensure the best primary care. So if, you know, patient doesn't have a good family physician and setup for that, whether that includes all your allied healthcare servers, so that includes social work, perhaps a mental health therapist, a physiotherapist, if we don't have a really good um, skeleton or foundational system, then these patients are seeking out service elsewhere like ERs, or they're presenting delayed with even more comorbidity and morbidity as well. So mm -hmm. I would say that is, is without a doubt where most of I think, the initial attention needs to go. And what about our um, underprivileged demographic that uh, struggle to get by, that are you know maybe on government funding, living paycheck to paycheck, maybe uh, like where are are like are they really the ones that are suffering as far as healthcare? Um, they can't find a family doctor, and even let's even speak to our immigrant population. You know, people who are moving here, they might be refugees. Um, you know, can you speak to that demographic at all? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're, um, just by definition, all the features that you mentioned, they're a vulnerable population, mm -hmm. they're exposed, um, and, you know, no fault of their own, undereducated when it comes to how to even navigate our system would be another example. So backing up from when we talked about where can the money go into the healthcare system, we, actually, we need to have more conversations about how do we address what we call the social determinants of health. That includes, um, where someone was raised, what their family makeup was, what was um, the financial setup for their families as they were being raised. Um, are they immigrants or not? Um, do they have underlying mental health issues? Yeah, can they afford housing? So huge, huge questions to answer even before dealing with the healthcare piece. So we're talking about preventing healthcare problems before they show up. Um, so when it comes to the refugee population, immigrant population, they are set up for failure if we don't deal with the social determinants of health so that we are setting them up with appropriate housing, helping with integration into their community from an education perspective. Um, and then we can talk about setting them up with a family physician. We thankfully in Calgary do have um, some efforts to manage these populations through refugee clinic and the immigrant um, various immigrant societies, which is great, but um, they're absolutely um, uh, vulnerable because more vulnerable if we can't even manage the pre-healthcare, pre-hospital challenges mm -hmm. that they have just by virtue of their uh, backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And again, we've been talking about this a lot, but I think it's really valid. So if we're so short on primary health care, let's say. We're, well, we're, I think we're short in nursing and doctors yes, and, yeah. and everywhere, but primary health care, what is the solution? Where are we going to find these people? Does that mean more people have to go into the field to be educated, and so the government should be promoting education of physicians and nurses and primary health care workers? Do we have to 
you know, outside of maybe um, getting rid of some of the red tape for international doctors, like what, how do we get people? Mm -hmm. So there's getting people and then there's retaining. So I think at one point we also need to just ensure that we're not losing, we're not continuing mm -hmm. to bleed our resources. And I feel unfortunately our, you know, political milieu, not only in Alberta, but in Canada has not led to success in that way. So. I'll go again back to like we'll use a family physician example is why are people quitting? It's because mm -hmm. they are not their days, which are insanely complicated and busy, are not being supported from a remuneration funding perspective. So we all love our jobs, but you know, as a skilled population, you should be funded appropriately. And if that's not gonna happen, how do you feel supported and respected? Mm -hmm. And so we lose, we're losing. So you gotta stop the bleed in addition to um, gaining more within the group. So uh, we do need to back up and start looking at the education piece. So as early as medical school, so this is well known across the country, probably globally, we know that you have to start targeting um, medical students um, and where, especially in family medicine, there's a huge push to try to draw medical students towards family medicine. Um, the numbers, the, the interest has been falling in the last few years, not surprisingly, because they're seeing their mentors, they're seeing physicians, family physicians struggle. So why would you want to practice mm -hmm. that type of medicine? And then so not being compensated exactly, properly. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> so the, there's been a huge push within med school to try to attract people to family medicine. Mm -hmm. um, nursing, I, I, I have focused a lot of my conversation around physicians, but nursing is probably an even bigger area of bleed. Um, so how do we track people into nursing schools? So we definitely need to start getting at the undergraduate and high school levels to try to get people interested and show them the benefits of doing the job. Mm -hmm. and, and again, you wanna be able to genuinely show them that you will be respected and supported. So that's a piece I think that everybody needs to really think hard about how um, they're gonna use their money towards that too. Um, I think, yeah, I think it's nice to see that the, those conversations are being had, but um, as you know, these are such complicated solutions to these problems. We are not going to solve, solve them on this podcast. Yes, yes. <laughs> what did you learn about yourself and humanity over the last three, four years? Mm. Um, so I can probably speak to humanity first. Um, and well, I think it brought out the best and the worst of humanity to go through an experience like a pandemic globally, nationally, locally. Um, you know, on one hand, it was beautiful to see these, these examples of how we were finally trying to come together as communities to recognize we're all in the same experience, this uncertainty, this struggle together. And so on the front lines, being able to see patients and have patients be incredibly grateful for the service we're providing and respectful of it was uh, I think very you know it was reaffirming for the work that we do um, within my team um, you know when you're struggling to figure out and how to navigate patients with issues that you know are novel or new um, like COVID um, but then all the pre-existing challenges we always see, it was, it was, again, a reminder to me, like, man, we are actually, like, if we can all rise to recognize we're in this together, the compassion we can share for one another was uh, the highlight, I think, mm -hmm. is that, you know, you can either, crisis can either uh, bring people together or break, break yes. teams, right? Um, so on the flip side, what came out of this was also seeing how, you know, 
opinions and emotions can heighten people and, and pit them against one another. Um, whether that's, we're talking about um, the non-healthcare community, the general population versus healthcare providers, or even within the healthcare provider community, which I wonder if people actually are aware of. So mm -hmm. remembering that I'm an emerged physician, I have to collaborate with intensive care physicians, um, other types of specialists, and we're all trying to work within the same fixed system. And so frustrations come out when I'm trying to deal best with my patients, but someone else's as well, um, and dealing with bottlenecks and all those challenges, that things can get heightened. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it was a reminder again that we need to step back and just remember again, we are, we're on the same team as we try to navigate this. Um, what I think was, we talked a lot about during COVID was um, how human nature can lead us to either think in a communal way or in a very individualistic way. Mm -hmm. So the challenges that have been constantly in the media about vaccination, for example, uh, pros, cons, the anti, the pro, um, whichever side you fall on, um, led to a lot of conversations about what should we value? Is it individualistic thought to get through a pandemic? To what extent? Mm -hmm. Versus, you know, what is, you know, what are our freedom of, you know, we talk about rights as individuals versus during a public health crisis, do we have any obligation to work together in a certain way? So all of that led to such a mixture of emotions mm -hmm. coming out, good and bad. And I'm sure even like very probably split opinions, even with amongst very educated physicians and nurses. And that's, yeah. you know, it probably was posed some challenges as well, right? Because to your point, you want to come together but because we are human and we are allowed, you know, freedom of thought and free freedom, freedom of speech, and there was probably some real challenges, you know, within the team that you had to really work through. I would say in general, though, and maybe this is where like-mindedness in, in what we want to offer as far as healthcare and our values for what that looks like, you know, the management of illness. In general, we were all sort of on the same page, but you, you have a minority of mm -hmm. people within the team who have a certain way of thinking through things. Um, the concept of using evidence and evidence-based medicine is something that we heavily rely on in our healthcare community, and that, I think, has always been our crutch to decision-making, and I think that's perhaps what unifies a lot of us mm -hmm. in this community versus those who are not in the healthcare community. So generally, I could say, Fortunately, there wasn't as much of a challenge in, in rifts or oh, anything of that sort. So yeah, that's good. Well, you're right. There are definitely outliers, but in our community, we were probably more cohesive oh, than the general yeah. Yeah, population. And then we've talked about humanity. What did you learn about yourself through all of this? What did I learn about myself? So being your sort of typical A-type, high-achieving person that enters a profession like this, I learned to be okay with my limits, mm -hmm. um, to be okay with not being okay. And I think I learned that it was okay doing that with the support of others around mm -hmm. me because they were in the same position too. So often you go to work, you go through this career feeling like, you know, you need to be all put together and have it figured out and you're there to serve others. So you better have yourself <laughs> together. Um, and if you're not, then hmm, yeah. there's probably something wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, but going through this, just recognizing that, uh, again, uh, we, we can bend only so much before we break. And that includes me. And mm -hmm. I, you know, fortunately, I feel like I never got to that point. 
but that was because I was okay with recognizing that yeah, I'm heightened now and I'm tired and I do think I have symptoms of burnout and it's okay to step back and say, my limit's reached. Yeah. And so I think that concept that we were compassionate to others, but why can we not be the same for ourselves? So self-compassion was something that I uh, came to peace with through the process too. And is that how you found yoga? Um, I feel like maybe yoga came a little bit earlier because I was just more of a uh, sort of passion project. I was kind of curious about diving into it. But the, the, the meaning of it in my life, I think, became a bit more clear to me as I went through the process of um, work becoming more challenging and just seeing people around me struggle a bit. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Anyways, yeah. I mean, I, I try not to make too much of the yoga piece because, again, I'm somebody who hates to impose on others, you know, what I feel like my values and interests are. But I really wholeheartedly believe it has... Um, been a very welcome mm-hmm. uh, outlet for me or just even the meaning of it being that forget the poses forget the yeah. actual like <laughs> practice but um making me more reflective of what finding peace on a day-to-day basis for me looks like mm-hmm. and so have you um have you started practicing any forms of meditation then um, I have not. I, I, you I, I actually don't. I yeah, pray because yeah, yeah. I'm very spiritual. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I, you yeah. know, and so I would say that's so, my yeah. meditation. But I find, you know, some people that do yoga seem to be also very like meditative, mm-hmm. yeah. or maybe yoga so, is your meditation. Fair. Yeah. So in fairness, I should say like I would say I wouldn't formally say I have some uh, meditation practice. But I guess this is a, a plug for like meditation is what you want it to be. Yeah. For some people, it's literally it's take point. breaths. Yeah. And for some people, it is more faith-based. Mm-hmm. And um, for others, meditation is running. I was just right? going to say, I yeah. meditate when I run. Yeah. I say to people, I can go more so in the summer when I'm outside. I can go for a run with like the what feels like the weight of the world on my shoulders, and I get out of that run for an hour, and I'm like, oh, that was no Good big race. deal. I don't know why I was making such a big deal about that. Sheesh, get over it, girl. Yes, <laughs> but it has, yeah. So I guess you know, for all intents and purposes, I have become a bit more meditative, but it's not. It doesn't have a particular yes, yeah, me. yes, yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. What can society, we, myself, our listeners, do to support healthcare and frontline workers today? Um, you know, there there was this big push. You called it, uh, you know, being a hero. Uh, you know, a hero. Yeah, and and there was a really a big push. You know, you'd when we weren't seeing people and we were just doing our walks outside, you'd see all these posters in yeah. the, in people's windows and there was this real sense of we are supporting healthcare workers. We're Seven here for you. Pots and pans yes. Banging. Yes. Yeah. And so, you know, listening to your story today, I still believe that there is a big need for support. Is that something we can do as society, or is that really more of a government funding people issue, or what are your, you know, any advice you can give us? Yeah, so as much as we've talked a little bit more um, at a higher level, speaking about government and funding, which is ultimately going to be the long-term answer, where the answers lie, the end of the day, we are all just trying to manage and interact and help individual people. And so when I go to work on a daily, I'm not necessarily seeing the big funding problems. Yes. I'm seeing the the mom who is really frustrated because her child has had abdominal pain for on and off for 10 months, and why are we not testing and figuring it out, right? And so I think I've alluded to it before, is on both sides recognizing again, I think it helps when the population we're seeing understands that we are working 
within a very limited system with the best intentions possible. And for us to, to try to empathize with the fact that it is frustrating for me not to be able to give more. Like we all as physicians, as nurses, healthcare providers, want to provide the best quality and timely healthcare. And often we feel like we can't. And so it's not without you know, wanting, without the passion for it and the dedication. And so when there's limits to the interaction, it's often not personal. No, um, and so I think the, the days that me and my colleagues or friends and I sit at the end of the, the shift together and we're like, oh, that was a pretty good shift. It's usually because our interaction just feels so much more fulfilling because mm-hmm. we do feel like, you know, I couldn't fix this child's anxiety, but the family felt heard, right? Or um, it's really unfortunate that this patient had a terrible diagnosis that I had to break to them, but they felt thankful that I was able to provide it, Mm -hmm. right? So it's more just recognizing that we all have our limits, so let's just try to, you know, this goes globally beyond healthcare, let's just find a bit of compassion for Mm -hmm. one another Yes. I think so as a, at an individual level it might feel like well I, I don't I feel helpless like how mm-hmm. I can't change the healthcare system but we can actually just be be recognize, recognize that we don't need to pit ourselves against one another mm-hmm. um, and I, I you know not not infrequently the families who just say to us so sorry to bother you so sorry to show up here but I didn't know what else to do and I just like oh gosh don't be apologetic um, in those scenarios it's like just you know, take pause and really think about what is the best place for you to mm-hmm. be and how can you navigate the system. So have you tried using a system like um, 811? Have you tried to reach your family doctor? And you know what, if you've done your best, you've done your best. Yeah. And I think that's that's something that you can try to control. Yes. To some yeah. extent. Well, I hadn't really used HealthLink at all until I had my daughters when they were really little. And let me tell you, that saved multiple trips to the hospital. Because as a young mom, like it was one of those things where I'm like, well, I don't know, should I be bringing them in? Yeah. And so HealthLink was a, I, I haven't thankfully had to use it since, mm-hmm. but it was a, like a really big um, service to me when right. my, when my yeah. daughters were babies, you know, right. not knowing. Yeah. So yeah, I really, really appreciated that and used that. So you value women's health. And can you share with us about your passion for wellness and holistic health? Now, um, you know, when we were doing a bit of research about you, you talk about, you know, going into or being educated into functional medicine. Mm-hmm. And that is something that I have really found in the last few years because not that I've had health issues, but I'm 42, so over 40, and really wanted to be um, preactive or proactive, sorry, not reactive. And so really kind of took my health into my own hands, got, you know, lots of blood tests, looked at my gut health, you know, um, got on a probiotic, you know, and I'm doing all of these things to be preventative. So I I really liked, you know, listening to that because there's, I think that there's a place for Western medicine and there's a place for functional medicine. So, you know, you obviously value this. So where did this passion come from? Mm. Which I think, it, uh, so uh, this was, again, just my own personal journey. It's not something that kind of fits naturally into the conventional medicine yes. practice. So I think it surprised a lot of people being very much an emergentologist at heart. Like that's very much the type of medicine I like to practice. But then going flipping into this other type of proactive uh, medicine philosophy uh, was, again, very much a personal journey. So 
I obviously am here on, you know, speaking as a woman, identifying as one. So for me, um, I have my own selfish reasons for um, wanting to advocate for, but also uh, manage my own health as a woman. And so where this journey probably started twofold. So about a decade ago, I got diagnosed with celiac disease. So that's a gluten mm. allergy, um, which brought a lot of attention for me to my own gut health. Um, so I obviously have a very identified illness, which is being managed, but then what does, what does this mean long-term as far as other health problems and can I be proactive? Uh, again, quickly back to healthcare in general, I think we can, uh, we can lower the burden on the healthcare system if we're much more proactive than reactive. So primary prevention, we call it versus secondary. And so I took that more personally for me and wanted to learn more because I do feel like through my conventional medical training, we don't get a lot of training in this piece, in this type of medicine. So functional medicine is kind of Mary's East and West. It's still evidence-based or attempts are made for it to be evidence-based in finding solutions to um, manage your gut health, um, your, your energy, metabolism, hormones, all that mm. stuff. So um, for me, this was a few years ago, I guess now, where I just started taking online courses through the International um, uh, IFM, International Institute, sorry, of Functional Medicine through the States, which I'm, are so ongoing, kind of doing it at my own pace as I have time. And uh, it's an incredible world as far as the, the, the way we think about the body and um, how, you know, trying to avoid getting onto any medications and sort of how we can deal with mental health, emotional health, and how everything is incredibly intertwined. Yes, Isn't it's it insane? so crazy. So I've learned so much about, yeah. like, your, from your brain to your heart to your stomach to your bowel. Like, yeah. it, it's really quite remarkable. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, um, and part of me is also aware that the work that I do, being a shift worker and emerge, we are always setting ourselves mm -hmm. up for some challenges health-wise long-term. And, and so we all want to do what we can to preserve longevity of our careers, let alone our uh, lives outside of our careers too. So for me, this is, this is where this stems from. And one day, hopefully, I'll have enough of this sorted out in my brain that I can start to integrate into my conversations mm -hmm. with other people. And I'm not sure if it'll fall into my career in any way, but um, um, keep doors open. Yeah, yeah, well, I think I can imagine it's a beautiful marriage of information because you're, you know, trained in Western medicine, but then to have now kind of some new concepts and some new ideas come in with the functional aspect of it. To your point, maybe you don't practice that in eMERGE medicine on a day-to-day -day basis, mm -hmm. but to have that knowledge is, I think, like wonderful. Yeah, knowledge is power. Yeah, knowledge is power. <laughs> Amen, sister. Naminder, what have you vowed to yourself in life? Hmm. Um, you know, I was chatting with some friends and family the other day. This is something I come to, come back to all the time when they when they think about how they describe me. I have, whether I know it or not, I have vowed to always reach for my full potential. Um, whether that is through my career, through my capacity to make connections with other people, to serve, to serve myself as well. I, and that's probably why I'm often hard on myself and those I love the most, um, or you know, being a huge fan of self-growth, mm -hmm. putting myself in challenging positions. Um, I think that's the biggest vow for me to my, to, you know, by the time my life is ending at some mm -hmm. point down the future, uh, I want to 
know and rest knowing that I have done everything within my potential in all realms of my life. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm pretty sure that you, when it is your time to go, uh, hopefully many, many, many years <laughs> from now, that you will have imprinted this world. Because yeah. even knowing you for the short period of time, I, I, again, I just remember sitting with you at your island and I felt, I felt this like deep sense of caring that you were putting out in your profession. Like you really care about people. And I, I sensed that you were just in that moment when we met, there was this almost like not defeat, but just this disappointment in the situations that you were going through. And you, you I just, I felt this care, like you cared so much about the people that you see on a day-to-day -day basis, your colleagues, and I definitely believe that you've imprinted that on the world, Naminder, and I'm so grateful that you are here today and Thank willing you. to share your story. And is there anything in closing that you would like people to know that we've missed? Oh gosh, yeah, I feel like we could keep talking about <laughs> it. Oh yeah, we're gonna live here. No, and I, I would, you know, I, I, would hope that everyone walking through life finds their own way to finding their own potential too. I'm not here to live anyone else's life, but I just know that for me, the sense of fulfillment is really what it's all about. Whatever our journeys look mm -hmm. like, there's no right or wrong path, um, but we're here for a reason, and I mm -hmm. think those reasons eventually make themselves uh, known to us. So mm -hmm. yeah, my, my hope for everyone is the same for this one. And we always like to spotlight a charity of choice. Is there a charity that you would like to spotlight today? Uh, I will spotlight the one that's near and dear to my heart that I'm myself involved in. Um, as we mentioned earlier, that's Between Friends Calgary. So this is a not-for-profit not organization that's been uh, in, around in Calgary since before I think you and I were both born. So it's been around for a very long time, for several decades. And the premise of it is, mission is to support, uh, initially used to be children only, but it's expanded to um, individuals of all ages who have uh, disabilities of all sorts to help them integrate from a social, recreational perspective into, um, into the community. So uh, I would say, and the work they have done is incredible. They have definitely become well-established as a respected organization supporting members uh, of our community with disabilities. Thank you, Sam. Doing great work. Thank you for sharing. Thank you for being here, Naminder, and sharing your story. I definitely feel uh, enlightened, more educated, um, and um, just really compassionate for our doctors and healthcare workers, and so grateful that even though there are a lot of cracks and inefficiencies in our system, um, I do feel very blessed to live in Canada and in Alberta. Um, where I, you know, do personally feel that we have had, you know, accessibility to healthcare, albeit sometimes difficult, mm -hmm. and just really grateful that you stuck it out uh, in the last four years and continue to. So thank you for being here today. Thank you. Thank you for giving even this space to speak at too often. We don't get this opportunity. So thank you. It's been great. Thank you for listening to The Vow, Voice of Women. We hope that this episode has inspired you. If you want more information on The Vow, visit our website at voiceofwomen.ca. If you enjoyed listening to this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us spread the stories.